Hello, and welcome to episode three, 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 definitely three, of the Cocksure Podcast, with myself Harriet, and myself Effie. Yay! Yay! We haven't done one of these for a while, oh no we have. Well, the reason reason we sound confused about what number it is, is because we did record a third one. I mean, maybe we should say that we've kind of re- revamped what we're going to talk about in the podcast. We have revamped it. I mean, in, in relation to what people have already listened to, we haven't. But in terms of our general view, of course, it's getting very existential. Isn't it? Um, yeah, we're only looking at overrated and underrated people in terms of history and yeah. literary figures. Yeah. Yeah, so it's like, before we thought it was going to be everything. And then we recorded an episode about actresses. And we were... I was, you were like, good. We, we were you, great. You were good. I love how you're saying we, because you're really nice. But you were fantastic. I was hungover I'm in deeply, my defense. deeply hungover. Um, not that that changed a lot, to be fair. However, it wasn't... The flow wasn't there, I didn't think. We're not as passionate... I'm well, personally, I'm not as passionate about it. I mean, I was deeply passionate about Jennifer Lopez. Yeah, I'm right, that is That is true. But yeah, it didn't, it didn't really seem that like, interesting. I think we were quite bored by it. Mm. Well, I think I just didn't really know what I was talking about. That's also true. I, I, I can't argue that. Well, no. To be fair though, J-Lo. Oh, J-Lo. Fuck no. Do you know what song came up on my Spotify recently? What? Waiting for tonight. Oh, tune. <laughs> what an absolute bad... That woman is just a... She literally just gets better with age. She's just a hit churner. Oh, isn't she play? I think that's my favourite one. Do you know who actually originally wrote that? You have told me this before and I can't remember. Christina Manor. Christina. Christina. Christina Millian. AM to PM. Harriet's done though. She went to one twerk class for a, for a few months. She's the queen. One. I would say six. Numerous. And I honed the skill. Um, but yeah, but so we realised that our extremely niche frames of reference that only the two of us are probably even interested in, but definitely talk about the most, is like historical figures and literary figures. Predominantly and women. Predominantly women. Shocker. Um, and... I mean, yeah, because we, we did history at uni, so that's, that's why. Well, I mean, it makes perfect sense, doesn't it? And we also read. We also read books. We yes. do read we books. We are so educated. I know, I'm right? so well-rounded. I love it. So classy. It's ridiculous. I mean, Harriet's even wearing a tartan headband. Like, I mean, seriously, this is some sophisticated women. I mean, we are sophisticated. I, do you know what? I think that basically we, we understand what our niche is. We understand what we're passionate about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So if you don't like literature and you don't like history, this is probably not the podcast for you. No. Unless you just like the camaraderie and the humour and the wit and the intelligence of two young women making it in the big smoke. You know, you can like it for that and it learn, but really the history and the literary stuff is top class. But you really need all of those character traits to be combined with the fact that you like people who are deeply cocksure about their opinions, because that was not a modest speech. Really, if we're honest. Modest speech. Did you ever think about doing English at uni? Do you know what? I should have done English at uni. Funny story, listeners. Listen, all, no, all, readers, all five of you readers, readers I married him um, <laughs> doesn't even make sense it's listeners I only did English <laughs> no I was predicted so I did English literature history and philosophy at university and I was predicted an A star in history at, at university sorry at school oh. thank you um, <laughs> thank god it has been so long oh, thank god you're here um, <laughs> so A star in um history and an A, oh no, an, uh, an A in philosophy and then I was um, meant to fail 
um, English. Like, it was so bad. Every single um, really? essay I did. No, like, literally, like, she was like, if you, my teacher, who was phenomenal, Miss Thomas, who will listen to this, shout out, babe. But she was like, I'm really worried about you. I went in with some test essays, like, three days before my exam. She's like, if you get higher than an E, it will be impressive. I was like, fuck, what am I going to do? Anyway, <laughs> sorry, someone walked out with 100% in the exam, baby. Shit. Got, like, got like highest mark in the year. And, and honestly, my, my teacher was like, I don't want to know how you did it, but I'm really proud of you. I don't want to know how you did it. Rude. No, but like, I think that just shows how phenomenal I am, that she would even think that for me to get that mark, I'd have to cheat. <laughs> <laughs> The most hilarious way babe, to take that, I love it. Babe, I'll take any validation. That's I'm a validation great. whore. Um, so yeah, but I just loved history because I love stories. Not just like made up stories, I like story stories. I do, I, I love a narrative. God, I love so a narrative. And also like, you know, having gone into PR, which is all about stories, like history is the biggest practice in PR and like the best um, examples of PR that there are. So you know, it makes sense. I feel like it's that kind of degree. Like I used um, my, I still use my, uh, like thesis dissertation as in like job interviews really as an example of things really because I looked at um, literally we're going properly niche yeah, now let's go. but because I used the study of midwifery at the turn of the 19th century <laughs> Harriet literally read. Harriet yeah. literally read this so many times it was fucking great check it out if you can um, as like a lens to view wider societal changes so because I work in health and social care sorry how is it a lens to view societal changes such a unique like terminology well it's because I want to you know I want to do my postgrad now that's what I would do it in the same kind of thing mm-hmm. but yes yeah, so I used it in my in like my first interview it was just like and it just made me really conscious of like social pressures and like just blah Stop. and like you have nothing to talk about in your first interview ever so it was like tenuous but at least it was some kind of link it worked it worked dream you're a genius got first babe like that I did out of a course of what how many about 15 of us don't don't devalue it no you did really well thanks appreciate it and I'm really proud of you even though it was in a weird faculty offshoot of history it wasn't the pure Italian oh my god it was economic and social history which I think might just be specific to Glasgow but I mean yeah is amazing and I loved it ESH for those who know esh esh we used to have sesh is for our social sessions. <laughs> the memories, the times. It's great. Shout out, lads. <laughs> Shout out. Anyone thinking of going to Glasgow, you're not going there to be even remotely cool. No, obviously not. We're not cool. You're cool. I'm not very cool. We know that. She's literally not even <laughs> pretending to make a sympathetic face. She's like full on smirking. Maybe. A nod might have been in there. No, I'm joking. You're actually cooler than me because you're actually you're more authentic. I'm just all kind of like even through that. the phone. The lack of authenticity in that at, like was like it hurt. Like it physically hurt me. Like everyone <laughs> listening to this is gonna be like, she's a dick. Me? No. I'll take it. Queen. Like, do you know what? I can't take it. Can't stand the heat. Get out of the kitchen. <laughs> Also, I am also a bottle of wine down at this point, so... Yeah. I mean, also, this was just how we spent our... Inter- like, me and Harriet had the worst last year at university ever. Like, we were both just, like, deeply miserable. Um, like, it was so shit. Like, it was bad. Yeah, we were both, like, in, like both in, like, quite deep stages of grief. Like, just yeah. not a good time. And we just spent, like... I'd say every day of revision, we'd turn up at, like, 10, go for a cigarette around 10.30, have lunch around 12, have a cup of tea around 1, have another cig around half 2, go home before. But let me just inter- interject here, because that kind of, you know, way of approaching work can go one of two ways. You can either go the F-E way, 
and then get a first and like one of the top grades in your entire faculty. Or we can get a Hasway and you can get a 2-1. And do you know what? That's all I fucking wanted when I was over the moon. But yeah, of course. We didn't fail. We didn't fail. No. I was really worried that I was going to. I was, I was, I was, I was, I was all over the place. I was about you failing. All over the place. I think walked out my final exam. I remember that. Anyway, that's a different story for yeah. a different time. Yeah. We've not got enough time. No, we don't. We can loudly talk about this for Dear a while. Dear listeners, we won't bore you with our own egos. Well, we will for 10 minutes at the start of every single yeah. podcast. But like, you know, times, times are running out. It's a podcast. That, I mean, if it's not just a way to reflect our own narcissism back to us, what is the point? Exactly. I just love hearing my own voice. I really do. Really I'm like nice. mesmerised by it. Listen to it so when I go to sleep. Do you? No. I find your voice really soothing. Do you? Yeah, really nice. I find your voice really soothing. Oh, thanks, babe. It's alright, it's like we did a podcast. I know. As you say, clasping hands. I know. Do I don't find soothing my laugh? It is. Oh, no, honey, my laugh is awful, the gackle. Yeah. Yeah, the problem is we both have a really loud posh girl laugh and it's really embarrassing. Everything about us is quite loud and posh girl. Yeah. Our names, everything. Anyway, moving Moving on. slowly onwards. So, the theme for this week is... <laughs> Historical mistresses who later became wives. So we haven't got a niche or anything. Yeah. Yeah. I think are they from the same century? No. 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 Mine's a little bit after yours. Yeah. Mine's a little bit after yours. Yeah. Yeah. So, as per usual, we will be each selecting, well, one of us will be arguing overrated and one of us will be arguing underrated. Yes. And this week I have the role of overrated. And I have the role of underrated. And this week I will be arguing that Anne Boleyn, Henry VIII's second wife, um, mistress before, um, is overrated. And Josepha will be? I will be talking about Madame de Maintenon. Who I oh, <laughs> underrated win. because nobody knows who she is. So she was the second wife of Louis XIV of France, the Sun King. Love that. Yes. So I think I go first, right? Does underrated go first? We should know this, shouldn't we? Do you know what, hun? You go first. Should I go first? Mm-hmm. So I'm going to smash you out of the park, so you go first. Right, okay, this is fun. <laughs> and she's not lying as well because I left my notes on my laptop at work. <laughs> So I've really hurriedly written them on some post-its in Harriet's office. In, in just like a very, very specific type of writing. My handwriting is like an optical illusion. Um, no one can read it. No one can understand it. But no, I mean, but I, think you can. I think I've got enough to... Um, well, we'll find out, shall we? Let's. Open, open. I'm opening the floor to you. Thank you so much. Madame de Maintenon. Madame de Maintenon. So her, her real name was Francois... Daubigny. 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 Oui. Francois. Oui. Um, so I'm just going to call her Francois because comme I can't. Si, comme ça. Yes, we both did GCSE French. What, what? Comme si. Comme ça. <laughs> Et comme ça. Uh, so I'm just going to call her Francois. Francois? Francois. I think Francois is the male. Whatever. We don't know. Can't no. I oh, know. I'll just call her. We don't need you anymore. Yeah. I'm uh, a. <laughs> please. I'll just call her Matnol. That makes it easier. So, Matnol. Uh, was born in 1635 in France. She was born from, to a really, really poor family. Um, so her dad ended up going to prison. Um, he like kept on abandoning his family in various places. So he they, he went to prison and then moved to Martinique with his wife and kids and then just abandoned them. <laughs> they ended up having to follow him back to France. Sure. So he's just a bit of a dick, had no money. Um, and Was she fit? Was she? No. 
So like, so one of the big things, Harry, you're preempting my story. So, oh, sorry, Good sorry. Good Lord. I'm so sorry. So because I managed to have any money, she ended up having to go to a convent to be educated, which she absolutely hated. Like she just like it was so shit. Like no prospect. She didn't really get educated. It was just really rubbish. So when she found the opportunity to escape from it, she like absolutely jumped to the chance. So when she was 17, she met this guy called Paul Scarron who was, like, 20 years older than her. I'm really enjoying how you do the, the French. Scarrow. Like, <laughs> a lot of, like, movement in the face. I really enjoy it. It's the only way I can do it. I'm too British. I'm very rigid in most of I my uh, pronunciations. Uh, I don't think I'm very French in these, to be fair, but, you know, it's exotic. What can you do? Um, so when she was 17, she met this guy called Paul Scarrow, um, who was, like, 20 years older than her, super gross, but, like, quite well connected he was a writer uh, and he basically like offered her the chance to get married to him and escape from this like really provincial terrible life in a convent which doesn't do anything so she ended up marrying him and was basically just like his carer for like nine years so she was like very uninterested in him as a person 17 so like really really young yeah um but he like offered her a way out and um it was basically just a way for her to escape and she like we like moved to the city she met those really interesting people and she just cared for him so he died like nine years after they got married um but I think that early part of her life is really important to understand the kind of person that she turned into because she came from like really poor background she was very plain like she wasn't wasn't educated like didn't have any prospects and she was someone who really like understood that she needed to like make the most of her circumstance um so he died after nine years. She didn't have very much money. The Queen Dowager gave her like a relatively large pension. Um, but then the Queen Dowager died and her pension got decreased and she was going to have to move and she was like panicking and freaking out about what to do. Um, so, but then just as she was about to move, she met um, Madame de Mospin, who was Louis XIV's current and like one of his longest standing yeah. mistresses. She's quite, she's quite famous. She's a big woman. She's a big woman. And actually I almost did her, but I decided to go for Maintenon. Um, so she met Madame de Montspin, who basically was like, you're great, let's come and be my pal. So she ended up looking after Madame de Montspin and the king's kids, because Madame de Montspin had loads of kids with Louis XIV, but literally like, could, could not have given less of a shit, like, so unbothered by it. Like, she was bad, I love her. Yeah, she was so bored by them. So she basically gave her kids to Madame de Montspin to raise and bring up, and Madame de Montspin just, like, basically kind of, like, cherry-picked the ones that were, like, the king loved the most, <laughs> like, raised them for him. Like, a baller move, I actually really respect it. And so he, the king really, really hated her when he first met her and was like, who is this really boring, really ugly woman? But then, because she raised his, ki- like, raised his kids for him, and he, it was, like, his favourite his favorite son and his favourite daughter, and brought them up really well, they, like, became, they became friends and they became really close. Um, and then... She was so she was very religious. She was quite she's like was like notorious for being quite difficult. She was very headstrong, but she was really she did quite a lot of stuff around like girls' education and she had really strong opinions and she really wasn't afraid about saying them. So I think for the king, he was just a bit taken aback about who she was. She was older than him, like he just didn't really understand her, and they became really close. And then as he ended up basically falling out of love with Madame de Montspin and becoming kind of more conservative as he got a bit older, they ended up becoming really close. So when the king's wife died. He ended up secretly marrying Madame de Maintenon. Um, I mean, she was 49, so she was a lot older than him. He was, like, 42. Like, no chance of having kids or anything. So it was, like, a real love match. Uh, and then they ended up being married till his, till his death. But I think the thing that I find interesting is focusing on the period before they got married, when she was kind of his mistress. So he moved her into apartments near him. She had a huge amount of influence. Um, she was consulted in political matters. Um, she was a real moderating influence when it came to religion because she was born a Protestant but converted to Catholicism. And this was obviously the time of huge um, repression of Protestants in France. Is this around the time of the Huguenots? Yeah. Right, yeah. yeah. 
And so there was like extreme violence mm-hmm. um, and you know, huge deprivation, huge poverty. And she was really um, a real advocate for being like, you shouldn't discriminate against people based on their religion. You shouldn't, um, you know, you should improve living conditions for peasants. And I found her a really interesting mistress because actually she wasn't really like a sexual mistress, but she was at his right hand. Like she was more influential than most of his advisors for a really long period of time. Um, and one of the reasons they think he married her is because she really convinced him that like he needed to live a more moral life. And so, I mean, he was the man who built Versailles. So it was like this huge symbol of decadence. He'd had numerous mistresses, loads of children outside of marriage. Um, and she ended up changing him quite a lot. Um, and really kind of redirected his focus. And I think it's, I think one of the reasons that I think she's underrated is because she was this very kind of self-made woman, fought her way up, didn't really compromise a huge amount. And it's definitely not, when you think about lots of mistresses like Nell Gwynn, for example, it's always like, you know, like stunningly beautiful and like really young and all of these things. She just was not like that at all. Like she was very clear in her position and she did lots of really interesting work. So she set up schools to rival convent schools so because she really didn't agree with them and she was like they're really religious and they just repress women and they just mean that you're just kind of abandoned in the middle of nowhere for the rest of your life and what she wanted to do was give them enough education that they could make like that they could make better matches mm-hmm. I mean obviously it's all within a marriage context mm-hmm. but she wanted to give them those opportunities and be like I don't want people to just go and like waste their lives in like small provincial towns and never be able to do anything mm-hmm. um, so I think she was very influential doing a really interesting part of French history, which is when there was this real um, kind of division between the old and the new of being, like, lots of repression, very elitist, very frivolous, to being, like, a slightly more serious stance on it and being, like, how do we start tackling some of these things? Wouldn't say it was massively successful, to be honest, um, but I think it's really fascinating that the last mistress of one of the kind of most powerful, decadent kings ended up being this kind of, like, 40-odd-year-old woman who really, like tamed him and calmed him down and had this huge impact and then ended up marrying him and being married with him for like I should know this but for around 30 years so a really long time mm-hmm. um yeah so that's why I think she's underrated because I think she's just like came out of nowhere forged her own path I think when we think about mistress we think in a very certain context and I definitely don't think that's the way that she was and she managed to gain that influence and then keep it for a really long time I think that's the thing with mistresses generally is that you know, especially in the context of um, 1600s, 1500s, whatever you're thinking, mm. divine merit of kings was such a massive thing. So you know that you are yeah. God, you are God's representative on earth, and that's a true belief that you that you feel. And although that gives you an autonomy over the kind of activities that you partake in, are you having sex with whoever you want to? That you do see a lot of turn, and there's a lot of examples of this throughout history of kings being like, "Shit, I need to be doing the mm. right thing." And also because obviously just the understanding of life being so limited if something was going to shit in your kingdom and you're like it's because I'm not being as religious as I should do so therefore like you see it quite commonly this kind of how the religious the piousness of women can influence the course of a king's behaviour and it doesn't and I think that it's really easy because of popular culture and because of films and whatever that you get really cut kind of bodice ripping dramas yeah. that makes it all about sex and really although that was going on in the back background which of course it definitely was it's not actually what the the key motivator is because fundamentally these these kings especially well everyone did in court but you know especially from king's perspective believed that what they did on earth was going to influence yeah where they were where they were 
And I think also, I think, like you say, because so much of the discussion on mysteries is about like, bodice rippingy, and I think Madame de Maintenon is a very, like, she feels like a very human character. Mm-hmm. Like, so many of the contemporary accounts of her, like, she's, like, mean, and she's biting, and she's cold, and... But also, like, she, like, so her and Madame uh, de Montespan, who was the original mistress who she became friends with, and then they had a huge falling out. But they had, like, a real, like, love-hate relationship for years. Mm. And, um, like, there was one point when they had this, like, absolutely massive... So Nancy Mitford's biography of the Sun King has a lot. It's basically a biography of um, these two women as well. And in it, they had this, uh, so they had this absolutely huge fight. And then they had to get in a coach for like eight hours. And they just were like, oh, we'll just be friends for the journey because who wants to be bored? And then like the minute they got on the coach, just weren't speaking again. Like, I think a lot of the accounts are being like, she was fundamentally flawed and not in a way, it's not in a way that she was kind of like the, like angel or the whore. She was like a real middle ground. And I think that so people just didn't understand who she was or what her role was and why she was the king so much. And I think she's actually one of the few historical figures that we can get a really 3D portrait of. And one thing that I find really baller about her, which I've got to mention, is she was really conscious of how she was going to be seen in posterity. So she burned loads of her letters and only kept the interesting ones because she wanted to be a mystery. Isn't that so cool? So she had this big thing that she wanted to be seen with this mystique. And so she was like, I'm just really going to like, like, not collate, what am I thinking of? Curate, that's it. She really wanted to curate the image that she was going to have her. So she like burned some letters from the king, kept some others, like kept lots of like questions in that you're never going to be able to answer because you can't see the other ones. And, you know, so she completely got that like she was this juxtaposition. And I just find it like weirdly modern. Do you know what I mean? I think it's like a really interesting view of her. I think there's so much about it that feeds into, again, this lens for society and what people's preoccupations were and how... We talk a lot about great figures and great leaders, and because she wasn't a politician and she wasn't a wife, and for an entourage, she wasn't even a mistress, it's, she's quite hard to put into a box. And mm-hmm. I feel like she's been very much overlooked because she's not as flamboyant, but I think she's much more interesting. Well, I think Louis, like Louis XIV, is just fascinating in, in general because with the creation of Versailles and the creation of um, like courtly behaviour and etiquette, yeah. He just completely ripped out a pre-existing system mm. and recalibrated it in every single way. So therefore, but then it's so true because it's then that's also prefaced with the fact that it's the old be the new because the oldness yeah. of him being like tyrannical and all powerful and whatever, and then yet being really liberal and really like forward-thinking and yeah. social, like putting street lamps on the streets of Paris to like you know promote safety. It's a, it was a fascinating time, that area, and I think what we're saying about Madame de Montmartre like, only reconfirms that. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's bizarre, isn't like, it? Like, who would you rather fuck, Madame de Montmartre or Madame de Montmartre? Oh, obviously, Montmartre. She'd be such a good fan, wouldn't oh, she? Oh, 100%. Oh, Madame de Montmartre. I mean, so she complained... Um, once she got married to the king, that he like she so they had sex twice a day, yeah. and she'd be like, ugh, like she cannot be awesome. I'm just like loudly bitch about it to people. Like I just love her. Like I think she's just really interesting. Like I think her, she like throughout her entire life, she just was like fully aware of her like limitations and was very clear about what she needed to do to have an impact. And like I don't think she set out being like I want to become the king's mistress and I want to get married to him. Mm-hmm. I think she just was very good at like seizing opportunities and very much was like you know what sure like this is what I'm going to be and this is what I'm going to do and I don't think you have many I'm sure there were loads of women who were like that but you don't have much evidence about it because obviously there were people who were silenced or weren't able to I don't know to write and those kind of things weren't educated enough so I think she's one of the few kind of historical mistresses but also historical women where you have this like plethora of evidence being like she was a very three-dimensional person and that's where she ended up and I think that's just really fascinating so yeah that's what I think Madame de Montspin Madame de Montspin 
Mar- Marquise de Maintenon. Marquise de Maintenon, lol. <laughs> Marquise de Maintenon. Underrated. It's underrated. Okay. Uh, yeah, so Harriet, speak me through your overrated person. So I've got a little bit, um, well, someone that everyone knows if you've ever studied history. Um, yeah, anyone, ever, anyone. Or know anything about history, which everyone does. Um, I've gone for Anne Boleyn. Um, now, I want to preface my argument before you even get started with the fact that Anne Boleyn is sick. <laughs> this is so we just don't think anyone any woman in history is overrated we're just like they're amazing it's the context it's the context it's darling. the context however I think in terms of <laughs> redirecting and what she's genuinely ascribed as being responsible for I think is massively inflated when it comes to how we know about what we know about the Tudors and it's just an easy get out for something that's like for, for less sexy topics Ooh. it's basically my angle Oh, I love it. Great angle. Um, So, for anyone who doesn't know, Anne Boleyn, um, the Boleyn family were um, a courtly um, aristocratic family. Her elder sister Mary became Henry VIII's mistress before she did. And possibly her mum was. I didn't know that. Yeah. Oh, really? Mm. Fab. Mm. So, anyway, lots of stuff. They were very social climbing as a family. Anne tried it out English court, didn't get very far, was sent off to France went and learned sort of how to be courtly and sexy and like make an effort and like you know practice courtly love as it were and get like you know find favour with the right type of people and then came back to um, English court and caught Henry's eye um, but I think when you think about when Anne did come back so number one Henry VIII had a lot of mistresses before Anne and after Anne even mm-hmm. um, but I think what is commonly um, over, like overlooked is that, look at the context that they were operating in. He's been married to Catherine of Aragon mm. for a number of years at this point. Catherine of Aragon was originally married to his older brother, Arthur, who died. Um, he's not produced an heir. He's only got a daughter, Mary. Yeah. Uh, and his father, Henry VII, you know, had basically united the houses of York and Lancaster under the House of Tudor by marrying Elizabeth of York following the, his um, defeat of Richard the... Uh, third. 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 Richard, third hunchback. Third. Yeah, third. Third. Yeah, third. Third? Um, I'm going to look up. You just can go. I think it's Richard the Third. Yeah, we'll go for that, yeah. Um, Who's going to know? Whatever. The Wars of the Roses was a massive tumultuous time in English history, Huge factions, huge fights, lots of people being overthrown, lots of people being understand. Richard III, we've been confirmed as the right person. Um, and so therefore, the Tudor dynasty, as we know, when you think of English history, you think of English history in the past, you immediately everyone thinks of the Tudors. But at the time of Henry VIII, literally, it was, it was his father who had been part of the Tudor dynasty. He was the second um, in command. There was a huge pressure on him to maintain this dynasty. So... He was married to Catherine of Aragon, he was still a Catholic, and he didn't have an heir, so what was he going to do? And I think that he felt that he was punished by God for not having a son because he married his um, elder brother's widow, and that was his kind of argument around the time. And he happened to, and I... Do you think he believed it? What? That, do you think he believed that as an argument? I think he was really superstitious. Yeah, I think he believed it. I think he was massively superstitious, especially as he converted back to Catholicism before he died. Yeah, and I think the thing is, like, I, d- I think we can't understand that type of preoccupation with, like, male heirs and 
religion in that way because like, we just don't no matter how religious you are now I don't think you, you just can't understand what that must have been like so although it sounds like such a convenient excuse now mm-hmm. I don't sorry no, I don't but, but, but he chopped off everyone's head I mean yeah. he murdered he murdered and executed so many different people because it didn't align with the way that he wanted to think which shows yeah. that he was very temperamental as a person um, had like t- tyrannical kind of attributes to him and was quite Machiavellian but also, I genuinely think he did that because he thought that that was his yeah. calling. And if you look at all his closest advisors, who were male, not women, not female, <laughs> they were also, you know, it was massively to do with the church and massively to do with, um, you know, he, when his, his, his best friend was, um, t- you know, Sir Thomas More, yeah. who was a Catholic. And when he, we're really not talking about Anne right now, but, but, Sorry, when, but, no, but when he, you know, when he decided to enact the act of supremacy and he wanted endorsement from Thomas More for him marrying Anne, Anne Boleyn, becoming defender of the faith of the Church, um, the Church of England and breaking from Rome, Thomas More, who had been his mentor, his advisor, yeah. who he'd known since he was a kid, he executed him. Yeah. And that isn't just, be, and I think that it's very easy to just be like, he did that because he just wanted to fuck Anne. That's not what it was about. It was about him being able to enact his what he was destined to be and what his belief was to, for him to be. So, so do you think Anne was a catalyst for that? Yes, I think Anne was definitely a catalyst. And she was... No, I'm not denying this. She was a fucking good player. Their courtship went on for seven years before it's the act of the happened. And they didn't even have sex until probably about six months before they actually got married. That, to maintain, is amazing. But girls, ladies, if you hear me... Like, you know, dangling it in front of someone, being like, maybe I will, maybe I won't. That's so alluring, it's so exciting. Like, yes, the king could have taken it if he wanted to, but he probably, he's also having sex with a lot of other women on the side of this. Yeah. Um, and it also not only enables him to break with Rome, so therefore he's not under the same jurisdictions as the king of France and the king of Spain, which gives him a lot more freedom over what he does um, as a ruler, but it will also allow him to marry someone new so he can become he can create a new heir and also the monetary values that happen with the dissolution of the monasteries so you know the point is is that he married so he met her in 1526 they didn't marry until 1534 1534 3 34 whatever after the supremacy came in 1534 so it recognised Henry as the 18th defender of the faith um and two years later, after the act of supremacy, she was beheaded because she didn't give him an heir. It's mad, so seven it? years of courtship, two years she just didn't give him an heir, and he chopped her fucking head off. And I think the reason he chopped her head off is because, number one, he could not take responsibility for anything that he did. No. Because why would he? He believed that he was, like, he was ordained by God. He was a, a person of God. And I'm, that is not what I'm saying as a defence of him, but... I think that we like to romanticise the love between Anne yeah. and Henry because it just makes it more sexy and it makes it more accessible. But also the dissolution of the monasteries happened in 1936, um, 1936, 1536, which made Henry so rich, so, so rich, rich beyond belief. And like, it him to gain so much more control. And we're talking of a time where dynasty and your, the longevity of your house is fundamentally the most important thing to you because you don't know when you're going to die. You don't know that you're going to get cancer or you don't know you're yeah. going to get knocked over by a horse or whatever it might be. Like, you know, it's all about maintaining that dynasty. And given the fact that his father had come from the Wars of the Roses, I think preserving the Tudor dynasty 
And then influencing that in terms of like the divine right of kings is a recipe for this kind of destiny that he had to fulfill. And also syphilitic as well. Well, I think also it's that, I mean, it's that thing is that like absolute power corrupts absolutely. Like you still see that now with like huge dictators or, you know, um, authoritative leaders where they still do exactly the same mm -hmm. thing. And I think, I think on one level, I think Henry VIII with his mistresses is really interesting because I think like on one level, like I do think he did love all of them. Like he did, very, he did a lot of like love matches, like Anne Boleyn didn't really give him anything in terms of like territory or control mm -hmm. or whatever but because like you say he was such a tyrant and because he did like he believed that his will was like god's will basically mm -hmm. like the minute he changed his mind it was instant and mm -hmm. it was it was lasting i think, think i do think that there, there is a love story there on one level mm -hmm. but i think like not in the oh but i don't deny that he had a love story but i think the thing is he had a love story with lots of women i think yeah henry VIII generally loved women he was like a he was a like, not love women in the sense of like he celebrated them, but he just enjoyed women. Like, yeah, he found women enjoyable and, and you know nice things. And I think that Anne Boleyn just came along at the right particular time, and that therefore we attribute the Reformation and the you know the break in Britain's or England's break break from Rome specifically to do the fact that he wants to do Anne Boleyn. And I just think that's bullshit because I think it would have happened sooner or later because he couldn't have a fucking kid with Catherine of Aragon and wanted yeah. to annul his marriage and couldn't. But the person that I think is very interesting to compare Anne Boleyn with in terms of influence is someone like Wallace Simpson with Edward VIII. Hmm. Wallace Simpson, American, like daughter of a wildly rich American industrialist family, Nouvelle Riche, and Edward VIII abdicated anyone who's in the King's Speech. That was his brother who abdicated why King's Speech had to even, like, you know, yeah. it, was, it, was, it was George the Seventh Queen's, Queen's dad. The Queen's dad. The Queen's yes. dad. The Queen's dad. Um, but he gave up his throne. He abdicated for her with no promise of ever reclaiming any more power. He was exiled from Britain. He gave up all powers. And they remained together for the entire duration of his life. And he maintained that in exile entirely. And obviously we're talking about 1536 versus 1936. But fundamentally the divine right of kings had shifted and changed but there has to be a sense of this like kind of his duty to be a royal i think is still there and with wallace simpson she didn't give him a child no she didn't give him real any extra riches she didn't give him anything he just gave up the throne for her so i think when we talk about anne boleyn versus someone like wallace simpson we're talking in very different social contexts but you know, Anne Boleyn changed the religious direction of Britain as a country until now. Wallace Simpson didn't change the direction. Well, because I don't think Anne Boleyn did change the, I think she just, that would have happened at, at some point anyway. But Wallace Simpson didn't change any of that. She just made the most powerful, well, not the most powerful, but very powerful man give up his entire position at a time of massive um, social crisis, especially regarding the monarchy. Um, and you know he never asked for anything back and whatever she must give a great blowjob I don't know what she did but that is like that is sick that is really cool that she did that that she had the, the amount the uh, ability of her power to be able to do that um, and I think it's just interesting that it's easy to just be like Amblin was the reason the reformation happened but I think it's a very simplistic view and it's not the sexiest thing to be like oh no he just wanted more money and he wanted it was more about a dynasty because that's not sexy but I think Anne Boleyn is slightly, I think her position in terms of why what happened happened 
is slightly inflamed, especially given the fact that after they were married, she was only around for two years. Yeah. Changed pretty quick, fucking quickly. I mean, I think, like, absolutely fascinating woman. Like, it's, like, similar for me in terms of Madame de Maintenon, in terms of just being, like, an absolutely, like, very fleshed-out woman compared to lots of women who were on the stage at that point. Mm-hmm. And, like, I think that's incredible. I think you're right, the Reformation was going to happen because he wanted to divorce Catherine of Aragon. He literally could not have done that mm-hmm. in the, like, in the Catholic Church. And although she died when he was married to Anne Boleyn, she obviously died, like, she obviously died quicker than she was going to because he, like, booed her off into the countryside and she lived in terrible, infested palaces. Like... He, you know, he wasn't going to wait for that to happen. So I do think it was going to happen. But I do, yeah, I still think she's a very important one because I think it's so easy to just focus on Henry VIII and forget about... Like, you know, we always get to talk about him as if it's just a bit of a joke. Like, you know, like, he had six wives. It's like, he was, like, a properly awful person. Like, he was not a good king. He, like, left the country in chaos. Like, I mean, not that I'm against us breaking from the Catholic Church because I think that was probably a good shout. But... You know, he, like, and I think so much of, we've spoken about this before, but so much of the history that we're taught in schools in Britain, it's like, there was the Tudors, and you then learn that thing, which is like, you know, beheaded, divorced, died, mm-hmm. beheaded, divorced, survived. And you're just like, it's just not, like, it's just so weird that it's a thing, like, as if it's just, like, this normal way that it was being, just because it's a good story, and like you say, it's just obscuring what actually happened. Yeah. And I think that also, what I really fundamentally dislike about it is that, and Berlin is blamed yeah. for this break. Yeah. And, like, you know, obviously now we're speaking about the Catholic Church and, you know, good to break from whatever. But it's this, it's like a, an attribution of blame as opposed yeah. to, no, no, this was a megalomaniac yeah. who couldn't have a son with his older wife. Yeah. And so, therefore, married a new one, but headed her two years later due to witchcraft, like, you know, accusations of witchcraft. And that now we're still taught that it was Anne Berlin's fault that we broke from Rome in the first place. And I think that blaming her is wrong. Yeah. If it hadn't been her, it would have been someone else. Yeah. She's a very interesting person in history. She also gave birth to the most prolific non-monarch we have in British yeah. history. Who I adore with every <laughs> fibre of my being. Huh? Prolific. Prolific. No? Prolific. Isn't prolific like multiple of something? No, prolific. Like she's got a high profile. Like, like a prolific writer. Isn't it? You like write loads of them. Oh, yeah. No, I think I think that's a really good. That's really good. Also, this is like a side, a side. Um. Oh, large one. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. Um, but well, high profile, high profile. Well, she was just a really um, powerful, important figurehead. Oh, she was incredible, and she's just so cool, and I love her. I think also when um, Anne Boleyn executed, so so did her brother George Boleyn, and his so he led his own defence when he got executed, and it's meant to be one of the most like incredible self defences like in British history, in like British legal history, Um, because it was like apparently like like, people like crying, like apparently it was like the most incredible thing. I mean, he's still executed, obviously, but it's like it's really interesting side note of it is that like George Boleyn again is quite a like forgotten person in history, and he was like absolutely fascinating as person mm-hmm. and yet he did his own defence and it's like still used now as an example of really yeah I didn't know that's really interesting it's really really interesting um, and obviously like convinced everyone that he was right but mm. that's kind of relevant but I think that was a really good one that's a really good way of arguing it I like it well yeah because I think it is true yeah I think right so there we are those are our overrated and underrated yes Madame de Maintenon and Anne Boleyn um, so shag marry go on a cruise oh god how would you make this modern or do we have to make it modern? I thought we were doing something to make it oh, accessible. Well, well, okay, all right, so let's think of some, some modern day 
mistresses. <laughs> that's not really a thing anymore. That's good, I like that. Oh, okay. Um, I guess I'm just thinking like royal-ish, I suppose. Camilla Parker Bowles. Love her. I nearly did her actually. Did you? Yeah, I always did. I was overrated. Um, no, I was going to do it as underrated. I was going to say she was underrated. Um, okay, so Camilla. So I'm just kind of going to do. Controversial, only Daily Mail. No, people love her now. I feel like she's really. Yeah, she's bagged it in, hasn't she? Yeah, particularly now. I mean, also compared to Charles, like anyone's quite likable. Oh, I know, different conversation. No, different I'm a realist. I love them. Okay, so I'm not going to. Okay, so I'm not going to even do Royal. So I'm going to do yeah. So Camilla Parker Bowles, um, who is uh, Stormy Daniels, mm-hmm. who's Trump's Trump's mistress, obviously, uh, and then let's be really topical. Jordan Woods, the one who got with Khloe Kardashian's baby daddy. Have you read that this week? No. Okay, we'll take that back then. Um, can't believe Harriet's kicking off oh, on social media. God. How do you not know this? I just don't really concern myself with the Kardashians. No, neither do I. I've never watched an episode of Keeping Up with Kardashians. Still know this has happened. Okay, still right. kicking off. Um, okay, so Stormy Daniels, um, Camilla Parker Bowles, and who is another famous mistress? There must be. There are so many of them. Like maybe we, we should cut this bit out because it's just gonna be us thinking. Uh, Carla Bruni. Oh, great when one. When Mick Jagger was married to Jerry Hall. Great one. Okay, so we've got Carla Bruni. Camilla Parker Bowles and Stormy Daniels. Wow. That's quite the. I don't think they've ever been mentioned in the same sentence before. No, no here we are. What, would you, what would you do? I probably, I would probably marry Camille. Yeah. I feel like you'd have a good, honest life. Yeah. Like, she'd be quite, she'd be quite jokes, I think. Yeah. You'd probably go on a car, um, a cruise with Carla and then shag Stormy. Interesting. What would you do? I think I'd marry Camilla. So British, aren't we? So, just seems like she'd have a lovely time and well at the country fair. Well, she's not going to live for that much longer, is she? I think I'd go on a cruise with Stormy Daniels. Uh-huh. Carla Bruni, oh, she seems so boring. I just feel like she'd really look out. Really look out? Look out. But on a cruise? Or did you say you'd have sex? I thought you said you'd have sex with Stormy Daniels. Yeah, can I not have sex with her? I mean, you can have sex with her on a cruise, that's true. No, I want to hear about Nicholas Sarkozy and also, I'm sorry, she's back with Mick Jagger, there'll be some good stories there. She must have, didn't she, wasn't she like living with someone and had a baby with his son? Yeah, I feel like there's, she's French, man. Yeah, she's so, she's so French. Yeah. How she ends up marrying Nicholas Sarkozy is really on me. Yeah, I love it. Let's just do every French story. <laughs> yeah, we're really, really, uh, really good. Yeah, yeah. um, okay. Cool. So I just kind of like to be seen and do a few Instagram posts with her like on a boat. Like I can imagine her in like pale linen suits with like big. You two would be hats. so fabulous and so beautiful, yeah. and so tall together. I really like it. Yeah, I do yeah, see that actually. Yeah, yeah you it. guys would be like so, like people would not be able to like stay away from I you. I could be the Jerry Hall to her. Oh my god, but don't worry, don't worry, fucking Murdoch, Jesus. Oh god, yeah. That's How mad that she did that? Like I, mad. what happened to her life? I don't know, but it's terrible, isn't it? I watched her on Who Do You Think You Are, that historical... Like, she was on Who Do I Think You Are? Babe, I love it. I, you know, I actually search Vimeo's for, like, the most the sho- most shocking, like, reveals on Who Do You Think You Are. I'm obsessed with it. I've never seen it. But it's such a great programme. Anyone who's not listening, Who Do You Think You Are? Amazing. Right. Yes. yes. So, episode three slash another number that we can't fully remember. Done. Sorted. Well, thank you for listening. I've been Harriet and I've been Effie. Um, have great weeks, everyone. Make sure you stay cocksure. 